You know, if someone comes up to me and they, and they uh, try to bring me, a, 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 you know, to help, they need help with a problem or they, uh, they want to level a complaint or whatever it is, whether it's a good thing, whether it's a bad thing, if I have a bad attitude toward them, I'm really not going to respond well to them. Uh, and Israel's problem here is that they, are, they, they have a bad attitude toward the Lord. They don't have the best of attitudes toward God, and God is calling them out on that. And notice, and we're going to back up to verse number one of chapter two, uh, and it's the first message of Jeremiah to backslidden Judah in particular. Uh, and so as he lays this out, he says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying. So what he's saying here is, this isn't me, Jeremiah, telling you this. This is, this is God speaking to you. This is a message not from me, but from God. And he says in verse 2, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in the land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, and the firstfruits of his increase. All that devour him shall offend, Eva shall come upon them, saith the Lord. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and are become vain. So what he's saying here is he's come to them, and he's saying, You used to love me. You used to seek me out. You used to have a heart that was turned toward me. And when you were in the wilderness and I led you and I guided you, your heart was lent toward me. Your, your attitude was toward me. Now, listen, we understand and know that they at times in the wilderness didn't always have the greatest of attitudes. There were times when they complained. There were times when they uh, were embittered. There were times when they wanted to quit and go back because things were hard. But ultimately, whenever they were preached to, when Moses spoke to them, when God showed up, their heart was brought back to God. And so God is making the case here. He says, listen, you, you're holy to me. I've taken care of you. I've provided for you. I've destroyed your enemies. I've grown you. I've given myself to you. What is it now in verse 5 that I've done? What iniquity have your fathers found in me? Interesting he uses the word iniquity because iniquity generally speaking is an intentional sin. So God says what is it that you think that I've on purpose done to injure you, to hurt you, uh, to destroy you? What is it in your attitude toward me and your fathers that have caused you to turn from me and to go after vanity? Vanity just simply meaning empty, meaningless, uh, an empty, meaningless void. In other words, your life has no meaningful purpose. You're, you're in pursuit of things or you're in pursuit of, uh, of unhealthy relationships or you're um, in pursuit of, uh, of self-satisfaction, but you're not in pursuit of God and the will of God for your life. And so he says, what did I do? To cause you to turn from me in a life that has eternal value and meaning to chase after your own desires that are going to end up being completely meaningless. The things that will disappear. And so he makes the case. In verse 6 he says, Neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt? 
that led us through the wilderness, through the land of the deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of the shadow of death, through the land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered, ye defiled my land and you made mine heritage an abomination. He said, I've done all of this for you. I've given you the good and you defiled it. You maimed it. And so their attitude towards God, their value towards God, their value of what God had given them uh, is something that is, uh, is God is calling their attention to. My uh, uncle that drowned when he was just 20 years old, had, he was a, a really gifted artist. I have a painting, it's, it really it's an India ink drawing. Uh, when you first walk into my house on the right side of the hallway, that is my great-grandfather's home uh, that he sketched whenever he was about 17 years old. And you would never think that someone of that age would have that much talent. I uh, was helping uh, Brother Ed, my wife was helping Brother Ed pack some things up on uh, Friday and yesterday and uh, and we ran across some old pictures and things and one of them uh, is a, it's a it's just a photo album but it's all the newspaper clippings from when he drowned uh, it's all from from the the newspaper in the area it has the story that was reported in the paper it has multiple pictures of him it has pictures of him in high school it has pictures of him and at the high school that he attended as a student he and two other students painted this huge mural on a wall in the high school and there was a, a picture of that there uh, and so we were just kind of looking at that and reminiscing a little bit and uh, and uh, you know I was really young about six whenever he died and and so the memories aren't that many, but, there, but I was old enough at least to remember him uh, somewhat. And so we were going through that. And I have, I have this phobia. My, my, when my grandmother passed away, uh, or when he died, my grandmother gave many of his best art pieces of art to extended family members that, that didn't really know him well. Uh, or uh, their children now don't know him well. And those, all of that has been lost uh, to garage sales, trash heaps, uh, or people that they look and they don't even recognize the name in the bottom corner of the painting. And, it, and they may still have it, but it doesn't mean anything to them. Uh, and so things that, that nature, I tend to be a little bit sentimental and I like to hang on to things like that because it has some value to me. Uh, and so, uh, you know, what Israel's problem is here is that they're not valuing what God is to them. They're not valuing what God has done for them. They're not valuing what God has promised them. It's, it's something that they can just easily take and look at it and say, you know what, this is old and antiquated, uh, and I don't even know the name of the artist, and so uh, I'm just going to give this away or sell it in the garage sale or throw it out in the trash because it's meaningless to me because they didn't know the artist. Listen, we ought to know God and we ought to value God and our attitude toward God should be an attitude that draws us to be close to him, to want to please him, to want to be in fellowship with him. And, and yet God looks here and he says, what iniquity have your fathers found in me that they're gone far from me and have walked after vanity and have become vain. Now, I'm not standing here this morning trying to accuse everyone in the room of uh, living a life of vanity or turning away from God. I'm saying this morning that I must continually keep my own attitude in check to ensure that that's not where I end up. Amen. 
And so what attitudes and actions that I have are, are, are attitudes and actions that can destroy my Christian life. Because if the life of the individual Christians are destroyed, ultimately the church and its ministry, the church of the living God is going to be destroyed. And we've seen that take place in uh, in 2008, and I realized that, that some time ago there was an article published that compared uh, where churches had, had gone to from 1976 until 2008. Uh, and so, and I, I'm not going to really tell you many of the names of the churches because several of you would notice them. And my point in this is not to be critical of any other church or ministry. Uh, it's just to point out the, the damage that's done whenever Christian lives have poor attitudes and toward value of God and who he is and what he's done. Uh, there was a church in southeast Tennessee that in 1976, uh, or five rather, ran about 7,400. By 2008, they ran less than 1,000, and today they no longer even exist, at least not under the same entity uh, that they had been a powerful ministry in for many years. There's a church in Dallas that in 1975 ran over 6,700, uh, that in 2008 ran about 2,600. In Akron, Ohio, a church, uh, a fundamental Baptist church that ran a 5,800, now in 2008 was down to 2,500. In Canton, Ohio, one that ran 4,500 down to 1,400. In Cincinnati, a church that ran 4,300 down to 1,500. A church of a very well-known pastor and, uh, and founder of a, a well-known Bible college that is still in operation today uh, in Detroit uh, that ran over 4,000 that is now disbanded. A, a large church in Van Nuys, California that ran 3,800 that's now disbanded. One in Jacksonville, Florida that ran 3,700, that's 2,000 and maybe less than that now. One in Hollywood, Florida that was 2,900, that's less than 500. Uh, one uh, in Louisville who was 2,500 that runs two, ran 250. One in Detroit, another in Detroit that was 2,500 down to 1,200. Uh, one in Springfield, Missouri that was 2,300 down to 1,100. One in Charlotte, North Carolina that was 2,200 down to 1,100. One in Lubbock that was 2,200 down to 1,600. One in a very well-known church in Decatur, Georgia uh, with an extremely well-known pastor uh, that's been with the Lord now many years that ran 2,100 and now just simply lists themselves as very small. After this was published, they had a pastor for a while that the church came back to about 1,500, uh, and now they're back probably to less than, than two or 300 again. My point is simply this this morning, that because of the attitudes and the walk with God of the average Christian, Christianity is on the decline. It's lost its influence. It's losing its power. 74% of churches during this time that was studied had decreased in attendance and 59% of them had diminished by more than half. And if you look at what's taken place in the last two years during the pandemic, uh, there are many, many churches that have completely disbanded. We are by no means a large church, but we have been very blessed by the Lord. Our children's ministries have suffered greatly, but, uh, but God has taken excellent care of us and our church and your faithfulness throughout this time. Uh, and I want us to be on guard that our attitudes and our spirits toward the Lord and toward his people, toward one another, is right and is in tune with what God would have for us so that we do not fall from in our Christian life and our walk with him and that our church 
does not suffer because of it. We look and we see a church that I pastored in, in Arkansas, there were six other Baptist churches that were within a two-mile radius. There were, in a city of 50,000, over 500 churches. Over 370 of them were Baptist churches. Put that in perspective, there was a, ch a church there for every 100 people that lived there. And within a two-mile radius of the church that I pastored there for almost 10 years, uh, one was disbanded, one building sat empty, another was struggling with about 30 people, another was struggling with uh, less than that. And it was just a, a, a definite, distinct pattern of what has been described here. What happened? What's happening? And because it's happening all over, and if I'm not careful, it's going to happen in my life and it's going to happen in your life. And if it happens in our lives, then it's going to weaken what we experience when we come together here as a church family. The Christian's life should be a life of concern. We should be concerned about the things that God is concerned about. We should be concerned about our walk with God. We should be concerned about God's power in our life. We should be concerned about how God can use us. Not only that, the Christian's life should be a life of commitment. If we're not committed to the Lord, if we're not committed to God's word, if we're not committed to doing and being all that God would have us to do and be, uh, then, then we are not going to uh, be what, or, 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 please the Lord in what we become. A Christian life should be a life of compassion. A Christian life should be a life of conviction. And when we look and we understand these things, what causes me to get distracted, to drift from these things in my life? What causes me uh, to grow weary with serving God or to devalue God in my life? And a lot of times it's my attitude towards him. What is my attitude towards God this morning? Because that's the central issue that Jeremiah is addressing with them is that he's saying here, uh, hey, listen, you, you need an attitude check. You've got an attitude problem. Your attitude is not pleasing unto the Lord. You're looking at God and you are turning from him. You've turned your back against him and you've drifted from him. And it wasn't just uh, the people that gathered at the church. It was the priests serving in the temple and it was the pastors that were caring for God's people. In verse 8, the priest said not, where is the Lord? And when we see people's lives fall apart and people heading in a bad direction, the first question that I need to ask in my life if I'm growing cold from God is, where are you, Lord? If I'm in a time of spiritual drought in my life, God, where are you? God, I'm searching for you. The priest said, not where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. The very people that were up handling and proclaiming and preserving the word of God did not even know the God of the word that they were preserving. Now listen, there are people standing in pulpits all across America today that are preaching a book and have no concept of who the author truly is. And we look and we understand that just because something says, a building says church on the outside of it, that that doesn't make it so. When we look at a place where God is honored and where Jesus can meet with us and where we're concerned about what God has to say to us. The pastors also transgressed against me and the prophets prophesied by Baal. They're, they're proclaiming truth from a false God. It's no different today. And they walked after things that do not profit. 
God help us to not be a people that are content to, to live our lives and to spend our lives on things that don't matter. We need to live our lives for that which is important to the Lord. And certain attitudes and actions will destroy my Christian life. If I have a bad attitude toward God this morning, if I have a bad attitude toward God's people this morning, if I have a bad attitude toward the lost people in the world this morning, I'll never be able to reach them. I'll never be able to relate to them. I'll never be able to uh, proclaim to them the truth of God. We must guard against having a poor attitude. So what's the attitude? Uh, what are the problems here? Well, we see in verse 8 primarily that there is a lack of concern. The priest said not, where is the Lord? I mean, if I'm walking along and I'm going through life and I'm praying and I don't feel like I'm connecting with God and I'm reading his word and I don't feel like I'm getting out of anything out of it and I go and try to do uh, something for God and for his glory and it's just powerless and it's empty, the first thing that I ought to be questioning is, God, where are you? And it's not that it's a, a bad attitude of accusing God of not showing up. It's, uh, God, what is wrong with me that you're not here? Because there's no problem with God. There's often a problem with me. But there's never a problem with God. I sin. I get a lousy attitude. I, I get frustrated and, and aggravated at times. God never does. And when he does take action, when he does get angry, it's righteous and it's holy and it's justified. And even then he's long-suffering toward us and has great love and compassion toward us. And what I'm saying this morning is that if I lack concern, that's a bad attitude. And Jeremiah addresses them and, and he says, where's your concern? The priest said not, where is the Lord? Concern simply means interest in, engaged in relating to or belonging to? Do I relate to the people of God? Do I relate to the church of God? Do I relate to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I connected to him? Am I engaged in worshiping him? Am I engaged in serving him? Am I engaged in representing him? And do I have even an interest in him? Do, is, is, listen, did you have to search for your Bible this morning? Or did you know where it was? Did, what, did, you, did you have to dust it off? Did you have to check the, the index to find the book of Jeremiah? Did, did you have to question and wonder, uh, is this really important? Was it a chore for you to come together with God's people this morning? I'm saying, are we interested in God? Are we interested in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we interested in his word? Are we longing for his presence and power in our life? Because the problem of Jeremiah, listen, Jeremiah, uh, by some scholars even, is criticized that he was a failure in ministry because he never even had one convert that he did exactly what God told him to do. The problem wasn't with Jeremiah. The problem is that the culture and the society was so cold and so hard and so indifferent toward God that they, were no, they had no interest in God. And they would not respond to God. He fulfilled his responsibility because there was a concern that he had for God and for God's will and for God's word. But there was a lack of concern amongst God's people. And an attitude of non-concern, an attitude that leaves me 
careless about what God, where God is in my life and what God is doing in my life and how God could use my life as an attitude that will ultimately lead to the destruction of my Christian life and my walk with God. Three thoughts about this lack of concern this morning. I would say, first of all, that there was no concern about their walk with God. Are you concerned about your walk with God this morning? You're at least concerned enough to be here. And I commend you for that. But just because I'm standing in the pulpit this morning doesn't mean that I always have the proper concern uh, about my walk with God. Now I try to. And the greater point is, is that there are, a lot of, uh, there are a lot of pastors that stand in the pulpit every Sunday that have no walk with God. It's just a job. It's just a profession. It's just what they do. They're gifted speech writers, but they're not necessarily walking with God. Are we concerned about that? Usually whenever I get to a place in my life where uh, I'm struggling with something or I'm frustrated about something or I have a really poor attitude about something, I can almost always trace it back to at least some minor breakdown in my walk with God. When the walk is pure, when the walk is right, when the walk is uninterrupted, uh, when the walk is focused... I tend to be concerned about the things that God is concerned about. And if a Christian has no concern about their walk with God, if we are content to follow after things that are vanity, that are empty, that are meaningless in light of eternity, then how could we expect that God would be big and powerful and special in our lives? The second thing I would say about this lack of concern is that there was no concern for the souls of men. How could any, even an atheist, and I've, I've seen, and I've read two or three quotes just in the last week, where different atheists along the way would say, I don't believe in heaven or hell or afterlife, but if you Christians really believe it, then why aren't you telling me about it? How could you believe in hell and be unconcerned about my soul? It's convicting to read. It ought to be convicting to hear. And my point is, is that how can we as a Christian say that I have a wonderful walk with God if, I, if my attitude about the, the souls of men is careless? If my attitude about whether people are coming to Christ, if my attitude about whether or not I'm communicating the gospel is careless, am I concerned this morning about my walk with God? Am I concerned about the souls of men. Thirdly, I would say, am I concerned about the spirit of the church? You know, every Christian here that's a member of Victory Baptist Church should always be concerned about the spirit within the church. And how my attitude and how my spirit is impacting the overall spirit of the church. Am I a negative impact when I walk in the doors or am I a positive impact when I walk in the doors? Now listen, I'm not saying that we, that we can't share our burdens with one another. That's part of what we do when we come together as a family. Uh, what I'm saying is if I come and my attitude is always bitter or my attitude is always angry or if my attitude is always frustration, if my attitude is always critical, if you're sitting here this morning listening, trying to find all of the errors in what I'm saying uh, instead of asking God to speak to your heart and show you some area in your life in which you can grow, uh, then you've got a poor attitude towards the spirit of the church. 
Pastor, you just don't want to be criticized. Well, nobody really likes to be criticized, and I fairly admit that I'm, I am, uh, uh, am certainly worthy of some criticism at times. Not, not, I can't remember a Sunday when everything came out exactly the way that I wanted it to come out. But I've learned this over the years, that I can sit back and I can listen to someone preach, maybe that I don't even have the greatest attitude or even respect for, and I can get much out of what they have to give if my attitude and my spirit are right with the Lord than I can if I just sit back and try to find fault in everything that they say. Listen, the, the Christian should not have a critical spirit. A critic is, is seldom... Is one who walks with God because one who walks with God would be in prayer for those things that are broken and wrong rather than sitting back casting stones at those things that are broken and wrong Amen. and listen I'm not saying that if there's something that, that you got a problem with that you shouldn't address it and come say pastor can we talk I've got an issue with this or I've got an issue with that absolutely you should do that and then my door is open but I'm saying if I'm walking around with a spirit that is simply critical and it's overwhelming me and I have no joy and I have no victory, then that attitude is going to destroy my own personal walk with God and it is going to hinder the spirit of God's working in our midst when we come together. And as a member of Victory Baptist Church and as a member of the family of God, I should be concerned about that. I should be concerned about how, uh, am I contributing or am I hindering this morning? Jeremiah comes at them with a message from God and he says, listen, I've loved you, I've cared for you, I've provided for you, I've done all of this and yet you've turned away from me, God says. And you hadn't even have any concern about where I was. When you turned and walked away and left me standing there and the distance got greater and greater and greater and all of a sudden you realized that you needed me and couldn't find me, you didn't even care enough to say, where's the Lord? An attitude of a lack of concern. Secondly, we see that there was a lack of commitment. We see in verse 11, he said, Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? Have we, begin, have we begun to serve false gods? Are we prophesying by Baal, Balaam? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. They're not committed to God. They're committed to the things of this world. Verse 13, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now we don't really, you know, if, if you're my age and older and you didn't grow up in, in the city, then you can appreciate a cistern. For many people, that was their source of water. And if it generally consisted in places that I lived as a kid growing up of big underground concrete tanks of fresh runoff rainwater and you intentionally collected it and set it up so that when you needed water you had water and so that cistern and if your if your cistern was broken you, and it got drought time you had a problem and what Jeremiah is saying here is that he's saying listen your, your life is so broken your spiritual life, your walk with God 
Judah is so broken that your cisterns are broken and cannot even hold the water that God's putting in them. God is loving you. God is blessing you in spite of everything that you've done to reject him. God is still pouring blessing out upon you and you can't even enjoy the blessing because your life is so broken and your attitude is so, is so pitiful that it just drains out faster than you can enjoy it. There's a lack of commitment. Commitment means that I accept responsibility for what's been entrusted to my care. Are we committed this morning? Are we committed? And the answer to that question really is yes. If you look at your subpoints here, the first one would be this, that, that we are committed to what we care about. If we care enough about something, we're committed to it. We, we give priority to that which is important to us. How much priority does the Lord have in our lives? How much priority, how much respect, how much love does his presence in my life command? And as Jeremiah preaches to them and preaches them a hard truth from God as an expression of God's love for them, He's saying you're not taking responsibility for what God has entrusted to your care, to his blessing. But the reality is, is that we are committed to what we care about. Secondly, I would say this, that commitment is necessary for success. I, I like sports. I realize a lot of people don't care that much about sports. And I'm kind of a, at times a sports junkie. I really have to govern myself so that I don't get caught up. In, uh, and I'm not as bad now as I was, you know, 20 years ago, especially uh, but, but I like at least to follow what's going on and keep up with what's going on. And, uh, and so I, over the last week or so, like probably many of you have done, I've uh, at least followed uh, loosely what's going on in the Olympics. And, and I've watched different aspects of it at times. And uh, we've recorded blocks and watched maybe 30 minutes here or 45 minutes there as we've had time uh, to just kind of see what's going on because, uh, because we enjoy that. And if there's one thing that's evident in sports in any, at any level, but especially whenever it comes to the Olympics, because it only happens, it happens so rarely, is that those people that are there are fully committed to what they're doing. Their entire life for the last four years, this time five years, has been committed to nothing else but their one event. And the few that have multiple events to those events. Their diet, their sleep schedules, their travel schedules, their daily schedule, their relationships. He said, Pastor, I, I, you know, I don't, why do you always preach about uh, dangerous relationships and things in our life and you talk about that stuff? Who are you to tell me who I should be friends with and who I shouldn't be friends with? Well, number one, I'm not anybody to tell you that, but God is everyone to tell you that. Amen. And he says a lot about it. But number two, if the world could be so committed to their craft as to allow it to, to dictate who their relationships are with in life, how could a Christian not be concerned about who our relationships are and how they're affecting our walk with God? And when we look here and we see uh, that commitment is necessary for success. You cannot be successful in your walk with God if you're not committed to it. We can't have one foot in and one foot out and succeed. 
We can't be dabbling and playing with all the things that, uh, of sin in our life and the besetting sin and clinging unto those things that we really like and then expect God's blessing. Commitment is necessary for success. Thirdly, I would say partial commitment accomplishes little of nothing. Partial commitment accomplishes nothing. If you're only partially committed to the cause of Christ this morning, if you're only partially committed to your walk with God, if you're only partially committed to, uh, to live in a life that pleases God, you will not walk with God. You will not live a life that pleases God. You will not enjoy God's blessing. Why? Because it requires complete, total commitment. I'm not trying to be unkind or ugly in any way this morning. I'm just stating the cold, real truth that God has great and high expectations for his people. And he sacrificed much for us. And he's here addressing a problem with Judah in the book of Jeremiah where he says, listen, you have a lack of concern. You have a lack of commitment. And then thirdly, he points out that there was a lack of compassion. Because they were unconcerned and because they were uncommitted, they had no compassion. They had nothing invested they didn't care uh, about how things were going to go or what uh, Jeremiah had to say. Compassion means suffering with another. Probably a better word for it in our language today is to empathize with someone. True biblical compassion requires action. It's not just having pity, but it's feeling and experiencing what someone else is feeling and experiencing them. Lee Robertson uh, said it this way, compassion is your hurt in my heart. And we look and we understand <coughs> that compassion and its importance uh, is that we all can do things without caring about what we do, but none of us can care about something and not do within it. Listen, I, I can do a lot of things for a lot of people that I'll never see again or that I have no relationship with or just it was the right, decent thing to do. I can do that and not really ever develop any, any attachment to them or truly care for them outside of just caring for their soul. Uh, but I can't love someone and not care for them. It's not possible. And what I'm saying this morning is that there's a lack of compassion. Compassion, three thoughts about this first. Compassion is the great motivator. What should motivate my Christian life? What should motivate me to, to share my faith? What should motivate me to live a life that pleases God and causes people to be inspired to find Christ rather than giving them a reason to ridicule Him? Compassion. Compassion for what God's passionate about. Compassion for uh, what, where people are and where they're headed. Compassion uh, for the, the things that they suffer and the, uh, and the disease afflicted by our sin and all of those different things that go on in life. Compassion should be my great motivator. It should spur me to action. Secondly, compassion should facilitate within me a forgiving spirit. If someone wrongs me, someone turns on me, someone hurts me, someone attacks me. Listen, if I'm compassionate toward them and recognize the reality that they're not the enemy, then that will allow me to have a forgiving spirit toward them. Am I a person with a forgiving spirit? Do I have an attitude of forgiveness? Thirdly, I would say that compassion always reinforces commitment. If I'm committed to something and I'm giving my all to that, then when compassion kicks in, it only reinforces and strengthens that commitment. When I care about it all the more. 
There was a lack of compassion. And then lastly, we see this morning, there was a lack of conviction. In verse number 22, and for time's sake, we can't read all the way down. If you go back and review this later, read down through verse 27. And we'll mention that verse, but not read all of the verses in between. But in verse number, uh, let's back up just a minute. And uh, in verse number 19, Jeremiah, on behalf of God, tells them, Thine own wickedness shall correct thee. And thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. If I don't have a proper reverence of God, then I, that, that's an unhealthy attitude for me to have. And verse 19 as he lays that out there and makes the point, then notice in, uh, in verse uh, 27, he says this, saying to the stock, thou art my father, and to a stone thou hast brought me forth. For they have turned their back unto me, and not their face, but in the time of their trouble they will say, arise and save us. And so God is saying this, he's saying, I'm here, I'm loving you, I'm leading out to you, and instead of you coming and embracing me, you turn your back and walk away, and when disaster strikes, when tragedy falls, then you turn around and say, Hey God, where are you? Help! But if my spirit is right and my attitude is right and my walk is right and my commitment is right and I'm compassionate and passionate about what God has compassion for, if I'm concerned about the things that God are concerned about, whenever I find myself in need and I turn around to find him, number one, I'll already have been side by side or face to face and he's just, he's just right there to hang on to. I don't have to search. I don't have to wonder. There was in their life a lack of conviction. Conviction means to convince or to be convinced. Am I living a life of conviction? Have I been convinced and is my life convincing others, not by my words, but by my actions, how uh, of what God says? Three things about conviction, because a Christian's life should be marked by conviction. If there's anything that should define a Christian's life, it should be a life lived by conviction. I should believe in what I live, and I should live what I believe. There shouldn't be any pretense about that. There shouldn't be any hypocrisy about that. Will I fail? Will I stumble? Absolutely I will. But when I do, I want to make it right and get back up and get back at it. Amen. Conviction is determination and difficulty. When I see conviction, I just, in the difficult circumstances, I have to get determined this is important. This is important to God, so it's important to me. This was a commitment that Christ made. It's a commitment that I must make. Conviction is determination and difficulty. Secondly, I would say this, that conviction is separating to him that saved us. The Christian life is not about all the things that you shouldn't do or can't do. The Christian life is just being so consumed with God that you don't have time for those things that don't matter or are sinful anymore. And we want to, you know, look and uh, people that are kind of on the outside or people that have spiritualized their sin that they want to hang on to, uh, they just look back and they get all critical. I mean, if I'm a Christian, then I can't go here and I can't go there and I can't do this and I can't do that and I can't say this and I can't say this. Just stop already. It's not about that at all. The Christian life is about God loves me and I love him and I'm devoted to him because he's devoted to me and I'm committed to him because he's committed to me and I just simply don't have time for those things anymore. 
it's not even a matter of right and wrong. I, I, I really don't even have to categorize things that way. If I'm just focused on God and walking with God, God, the Holy Spirit has a way of sorting all of the sin out of my life. And you know what? I'm so wrapped up in Him that I don't even miss it. That's a funny thing when I was walking down the hallway at college and bumped into my wife, or my, uh, who would become my wife, uh, that, you know, a, a lot of priorities changed. A lot of relationships changed. There are a lot of guys in the dorm that I didn't really care about whether or not they had free time or not. I didn't really care about going to the gym and playing ball. I didn't really care about what I wasn't doing. I cared about being with her. It's amazing how God gives us those pictures in life. There, there are a lot of things whenever God gave you children that change in your life. When that first child comes along, your life radically and forever changes. And it changes who you hang out with and where you go and what you do and what's important and where your priorities are. Uh, it changes your sleep schedule. It changes your eating schedule. It changes everything. You know, it's funny with four children, I don't ever remember whenever I look back over the years what I missed out on. I just remember the blessings that God gave as a result of them. And if we had an attitude as Christians that was focused on our walk with God, our relationship with God, and the growth in God, and the blessing of God, and the love of God, and we were fully committed to and engaged in that relationship, it's amazing what we wouldn't do or have time for or think about anymore that we would never even miss, not because we sacrificed and gave it up, but because we simply loved God and were interested in spending time with one that we loved. Conviction is separating to him that saved us. And then conviction is separating from that which harms us. Anything that harms my relationship with my wife needed to go. Didn't matter if it was right or wrong. It mattered, did it hinder the relationship? You know, as a kid, I liked, I liked to hunt, I liked to fish, I liked to go do this, I liked to go do that. And there were some things like that when we got married that my wife would join in on. And then the kids came along and then, and I realized you can work all those things in uh, at later stages of life. But I'm just saying, you know, whenever I didn't go and do those things anymore, it wasn't a conscious effort to, oh, I can't, I can't go do that. And I'm not saying you shouldn't go fishing, okay? I'm just saying, for me, at that particular point in our life and where we were and what we were doing, there wasn't time for that. And if I would have made time for that, then it would have harmed our relationship. For example, if I had one day off a week, which was defined a lot of my life, uh, and, and sometimes I didn't get that, and it was my off time for many years was measured more in hours than it was in days, uh, but if I, you know, got half a Saturday off from the plant uh, and I came home and ate lunch and kissed my wife and said, I'm going fishing and left her behind, that's not helping my marriage. Is there anything wrong with fishing? No. But it's not helping my marriage. So I had to go. Why? Because the marriage was more important. Anything that comes between us and the Lord 
anything that hinders that relationship. It should naturally go away. Whether it's right, whether it's wrong, whether it's good, whether it's bad is not even relevant at this point. It's a matter of is it healthy and is it helping me walk with God. Conviction separates me from that which harms my relationship with God as I'm drawn to him. As we wrap this up this morning, I would say this and just ask these questions. Is my Christian life strengthening? If I am a person that has a healthy attitude toward the things of God, a healthy attitude from God, if I am a person who uh, is in love with the Lord and is serving the Lord, if I have a, a life that is going to be pleasing to the Lord rather than having attitudes that are going to destroy me, then I should be able to say that my Christian life is growing stronger. How do I make this evaluation? Just ask the question, is my Christian life strengthening? Another question. Am I investing in the work of God? And I'm not talking about just putting money in the offering plate. Is my life making an investment in God's work? Who are you discipling right now? Who did you invite to church this week? Who did you share the gospel with? When's the last time you even prayed and asked God to put someone in your path that you could share the gospel with? Am I proactively investing my life in the work of God? Is my Christian life getting stronger or am I just trying to maintain what I have? By the way, if you're just trying to maintain what, what, you're, what you have, you, you won't. It'll, it'll weaken. Last question. Could I survive a spiritual tragedy? Is my Christian life in such a state right now that if a spiritual tragedy happened to me, could I survive it? What if someone that I respected fell into sin? What if someone that I invested a lot of time in betrayed me and turned on me and began to attack me? Could I survive that tragedy? Am I concerned? Am I committed? Am I compassionate? Am I convicted this morning? Do I have the capacity to be convicted when I sin against God or have I seared my conscience? Can I be convicted or have I gotten to a place where I don't even know what's right and wrong anymore? Listen, a Christian ought to know God well enough to know what's right and wrong. And if you don't, just walk with the Spirit and He'll tell you. What's your attitude like this morning? What kind of actions are you living? What kind of attitudes do we have? Are they attitudes and actions that will destroy us? Or are they attitudes and actions that will bring us closer to God and grow and develop us in the days ahead?